Hey everybody, you're listening to Top Quartile, where we bring you stories from the front lines of growth in community-focused financial services. All right, welcome back to Top Quartile. Excited to have Scott Brinker on the show today. Scott, welcome. Hey, great to be here with you. Yeah, so as we get started, tell us a little bit more about your background, your current role, what you're up to. Sure. Well, um, my background uh, up until my current role was always as a uh, entrepreneur. Uh, you know, back in the days of running a web development agency uh, at the start of all this craziness, and then uh, build a SaaS company uh, to help marketers uh, do interactive content, things like quizzes, assessment tools, calculators. Uh, and then after that is when I joined HubSpot here to help them develop their platform ecosystem, uh, all the other MarTech, sales tech, other applications, you know, that could be connected to HubSpot. So professionally, that's what I've done. And then kind of as a hobby in parallel to this, my passion project has been uh, writing a blog on the intersection of marketing and technology called uh, Cheap Market. Yeah. Uh, just in your spare time, right? <laughs> you know, I'm a very unidimensional person. Like after a full day working at a MarTech company, there's nothing I love better than kicking back and, you know, writing some more MarTech. So, yeah. Awesome. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, so, you know, you said it to your, to your point, you said at a very interesting vantage point of looking out over that market tech ecosystem, you know, sort of broadly, but then also you you oversee, you know, kind of a private ecosystem, if you will. So what are, you know, what are some of the key growth trends you're seeing from that vantage point? You know, this is one of the things about marketing technology is it's just gone through such rapid yeah. evolution over the past couple decades. And every time we think we're passed away of like, okay, things have sort of settled down, like this is the new normal, some new change happens that shifts us again. Uh, you know, I mean, I've was, uh, I don't know, three of the changes I've been paying a lot of attention to, like this one of certainly right. AI, uh, particularly this year is just enabling incredible new capabilities at a, at a rate that's a little bit yeah. hard to keep up with. Um, I'm also super interested with how the world of data mm -hmm. is changing yeah. in marketing. It used to be all these different MarTech apps had their own little mini database, um, in many ways, very siloed from each other. Uh, and increasingly now we're seeing more and more of this connected through cloud data warehouses. Uh, and then the third trend that I've always been really fascinated about, it's accelerated a lot, AI is feeding into it, uh, is this idea of no code, which I, I interpret very broadly as empowering non-experts, mm -hmm. non-specialists, non-software people, be able to like build uh, and do at least low-end, if not mid-end use cases uh, for things like, oh, I want this whole workflow or I want this app or is there some way I could analyze this data and my data analyst, you know, has a three month backlog, yeah. um, you know, just empowering people you know, in marketing to self-service more of their needs there. Um, those three things I think are really powerful, particularly actually how they fit together. Yeah, for sure. Um, and so and I guess the example of no code is... Um, Sort of like like the evolution of putting together an email, for example. You know, 10, 10 years ago, we were all hand coding email templates in HTML. And now uh, there's no good reason to hand code any HTML for, as an example. Yeah, no, that's absolutely a great example. In fact, it's funny when people hear the phrase no code, they tend to think like, oh, you mean like building a software application? And can I do that without having to do JavaScript and Python? Um, that's one example, but I, I subscribe to the much broader interpretation of no code is, yeah, all these things before that used to require all this 
gnarly technical expertise, like, oh, I've got to learn HTML and CSS and, you know, how do I like, yeah, pull in the JavaScript to do that and to say like, no, 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 you can just sit here with the WYSIWYG environment and design, you know, the web page, the landing page, the email you want. Um, and it's not a techie task anymore. That's a great example. So what are some other ways that sort of maybe the same or different than it would have looked 10 years ago? Oh my goodness. Um, you know, I think one of the areas we now just take for granted, uh, you know, is uh, how marketing automation uh, has evolved, uh, right? Like, uh, you know, 10 years ago, like uh, when marketing automation was really just getting started. And these were early days for HubSpot and Marketo. Yeah. I guess Eloqua had been around for a while, but it was still, yeah. you know, relatively early part not. You know, there was a set right. of them, you know, often what people, uh, the, the joke was, is people would buy these marketing automation tools and then they turn around and largely just use them for uh, batch and blast. Like, okay, well, now I just have a list and I'll send the same thing to every list. Uh, yeah, isn't marketing automation great? You know, and I think one of the things you've seen over the past 10 years is this evolution of people actually getting really sophisticated of saying, no, you know, this isn't just like batch and blast campaigns. We have more and more of these programmatic elements of our demand funnel where we're looking for different signals. And based on those signals, we're able to react to them dynamically one-to-one. You know, and this has been an evolution, both the tools yep. have made it a lot easier. Like it used to be actually quite hard to do that. You know, now increasingly the tools make it very easy to like, oh yeah, here's my sort of customer journey flow. And yeah, I'll look for this trigger and then I want this action to happen. And then we move them to this next stage. Um, so part of it's been the evolution of that tech, but part of it's also just been the evolution of the practice, mm-hmm. uh, the, you know, the discipline, the ways in which marketers think about doing this and measure it and use it. So, um, yeah, a, a lot of innovations happened in the world of marketing automation over 10 years. Oh, yeah, for sure. And so what are some other sort of manifestations maybe of, you know, and well, the three trends you just talked about are really interesting because they're all interconnected. Like, you know, so maybe unpack that a little bit. Yeah, well, let's start with the data side, because in yeah. many ways, that is the foundation for so much of this. Uh, so I was, as I was saying earlier, it used to be that every MarTech app kind of had its own private database. Right. Um, and for a lot of times, there weren't even like APIs to access that data. Like your only way of getting to the data was working through the tool. Um, this yeah. created a lot of lock-in. Yeah. Uh, and whether you thought lock-in was good or bad probably depended on were you the vendor or you were the buyer, <laughs> um, you know, but that was the dynamic, you know, 10 years ago with this stuff. And then we slowly started to, I mean, partly because there were so many different MarTech tools, yeah. uh, you know, which was driven by there being so many new emerging innovations in marketing more broadly that people then wanted different tools to be able to do. But as people started to adopt more and more of these different tools, having these isolated data silos became more and more pro, you know, problematic. People really needed to have these things integrate and connect with each other. And so that's where we started to move to you know, more and more API-based ways of saying, oh, okay, well, if I have a contact record here, you know, I can call an API to this product over here and pass that contact along. And then you yeah. know, there's ways I can get information back when you know, that contact engages with a particular event or something like that. Uh, and so that was a good, you know, 10 year progression of us starting to really connect the MarTech ecosystem over APIs. But still, you were somewhat limited in what the specific APIs for specific tools opened up to you. Yep. 
each tool might have slightly different APIs, you know, so it was definitely not um, Nirvana from the perspective of like, oh, well, how do I get all this data connected together? Still, still a fair amount of work. The shift that's happened more recently is over time, there's been such a drive to get data into the cloud data warehouse mm-hmm. that increasingly more and more MarTech products have whatever else they're doing made it possible for customers to push the data from that product down into a cloud data warehouse. And that way, you know, uh, folks could uh, uh, do a number of things like they could certainly analyze that data. They could mix it and match it with other data yep. coming throughout where in the business. Um, and this really in many ways started to open up this almost golden age of, uh, you yep. know, analytics and business intelligence. But then even more recently, <laughs> something that's got a terrible name, we'll call it reverse CTL. Uh, ETL was all about loading data into these cloud data warehouses. Reverse ETL, as you might expect, was about, oh, well, we got all this data in the warehouse. Can we now manipulate it and pipe it back into our frontline systems, our mm-hmm. CRM, marketing automation, you know, our web uh, digital experience platform, things like that. And that's really exciting because now what's happening is you can sort of look at these cloud data warehouses as becoming a universal data layer and everything's <laughs> piping into it. And increasingly we can like take the, any combination of the data from within it, you know, and then leverage it, not just for analysis, but actually pipe it back into our frontline operational systems and marketing, sales, customer yeah. service. Uh, so that whole like uh, evolution, I think is a pretty fascinating and a like transformative shift uh, in marketing technology. Oh yeah, for sure. And, and I think that goes back to, if I think about the ecosystem or the epochs, if you will, in this category, and I guess it's debatable, but you know, um, maybe one or two generations ago, something like a, a Unica would have been state of the art, you know, client server installed, talk to your data warehouse, required IT to get involved, to make changes, to add, you know, it was, it was good. I mean, it was better than, I mean, it, you know, better than the the artist. Absolutely. Yeah. But that was to your point, you know, very contained. And then, and then I guess, I don't know what the next generation would be, but um, somewhere along the way, we realized, and you're hinting at this, that you can't just, like, you're never going to have one system that does it all. Right. That, that was kind of a fundamental realization. And so what, you know, what you're talking about is the connectivity between those really became important. And, and so I think some of the industry leading platforms, you know, um, like you're talking about, realized that and said, let's embrace it. We're never going to build all that functionality ourselves. So let's make it really easy to connect with other players. Is that, yeah. is that kind of what you're talking about? hundred percent. In fact, that's actually how I came to HubSpot is because, all right, so one of the things I've done with my hobby is I've mapped out year over year the the MarTech landscape that was initially a few hundred and grew into be, oh my goodness, 10,000 different solutions. And so one of the things I do is at different conferences when I'd be interviewing, uh, you know, the executives of these major companies, you know, know, uh, I will name the names, protect the uh, guilty (laughs) here, but major you know, public yep. MarTech involved companies, I'd, I'd show them the map and I'd ask them, well, what do you see here? You know, yep. and like time and time again, the answer would be all the sort of fear, uncertainty and doubt. 
It would be like, no, no, that's all the crap out there. This is why you just want to buy our product so you don't need any of that other stuff. Yeah. I'm like, all right, well, then, you know, doesn't seem to be playing out that way in the market, but okay, that's your position. <laughs> uh, and then uh, when I uh, met up with Brian Halligan the, at the time, the CEO and the co-founder of HubSpot, uh, he had reached out to, you know, if I might be interested in joining them. So I'm like, all right, well, this is a great time to ask this question. So I show him the map and I'm like, all right, well, what do you see here? And like, without a moment's hesitation, he was like, oh, this is opportunity. You know, it was yeah. like a, a mind shift uh, in, you know, not looking at all these other creators and products as like competition, but in many ways, like looking at them as an engine of innovation that if you were to take a platform approach, you could actually harness this power and innovation, you know, to the benefit uh, of these larger companies. Yeah, very, very well said. And so, uh, so I was sold at that moment. I'm like, all right, you had me at hello. <laughs> you had me at opportunity. <laughs> right, like you get it. Yeah. So what, I'm just curious, what are some, maybe, maybe what are some of some of the lessons learned on sort of what, what creates a successful ecosystem? Cause I guess it's somewhere, for example, at somewhere on the way you got, uh, what might be considered a competitor to apply for, you know, to add an app to the ecosystem. How was that treated? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And so this is one of the things that so many factors into this, yeah. but let's talk about the competitive one for a moment. Yeah. This is the nature of MarTech is there are so many overlapping pieces. Right. And even when you talk about doing something like, oh, I'm going to do social media management. Right. Well, when you actually get into the practice of social media management, that can mean a ton of different things. There are different yep. ways you approach it, yep. you know, different things in regulated industries, you know. So... If you just say like, oh, well, we don't want any competitors in our marketplace and you define competitor in this like very loose way, um, then you're like, okay, no, I'm kind of back to that mode of saying, I'm just trying to go it alone. Um, yeah. I think one of the things I was very happy, you know, with HubSpot, uh, you know, and this is again, credit to, you know, Brian and Dharmesh as the co-founders of like, hey, listen, the water's great. Come on in, you know, that if HubSpot lets customers have the choice, when you buy HubSpot as a platform, you can use the tools in HubSpot. But if there's another tool that competes with a piece of HubSpot that you would prefer to use for that piece, mm-hmm. come on, connect it. That, that's when it still actually keeps people on HubSpot yep. as that center of gravity. Uh, and so, yeah, I, th- I think it's a an, an enlightened way of looking at that universe. But at the end of the day, it's a self-interested way of looking at it. It's like, yeah, don't don't always be competing with this stuff. Find ways to have it like get, you know, force for you. Why do they call that a uh, co-opetition is the popular yeah, frame yeah. for it. <laughs> well, you, you talked about uh, highly regulated industries and obviously we're very interested in, um, you know, kind of the financial services space, but this may apply to others. You know, what are maybe really important for, is there, is, are there differences or key considerations for highly regulated industries to participate in the, in the ecosystem? I mean, certainly the primary ones have to do around uh, data, you know, yeah. like uh, what data can you store? Uh, if it's sensitive data, you know, yeah. the level of protections that are put in place for that. Um, and so, yeah, this, you know, and then actually, so that's just at the data level, which right. can right. be challenging enough. But then very often also, you know, depending on the nature of the industry, you might need certain processes in place and how things get executed and how do they get reviewed and how do we deal with exception management? You know, it just, it, it becomes a little bit more complicated from a governance perspective 
but this is why when you see MarTech products evolve to support these more regulated industries, that's what they're investing in. They're investing in providing that sort of tool set uh, and guardrails to be able to meet those next level of regulatory requirements. Yeah. And I guess in some ways there's a there's a there's a point of leverage because there's the the, you, the platform or the you know, the platform owner has a very vested interest in make sure all those data protection things are applied for the ecosystem. And so Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean this is um it's funny. I've I've talked <laughs> to people about, you know, when you someone says like, oh, does product X integrate with product Y? That actually in today's world, the answer is almost always yes. There's probably some way to connect them. Yeah. Um, but like if you really dig into it, you realize an integration isn't like a black and white thing. Right. It's like, oh, well, there's integration at the data layer. There can be integration at the workflow layer. There can be integration at the user experience layer. Right. But what you just brought up is one that people don't often think of, but I agree with you. It's like a huge component. There's integration from a governance layer. You know, that if a platform is basically doing that work to make sure that partners in their ecosystem are trustworthy, uh, you know, that they meet certain requirements so that the platform customers, when they're purchasing, you know, these other solutions from the ecosystem, you know, they, they, they could have confidence uh, that this is going to work and it's going to fit into that larger scheme. That could be a huge value lever. Yeah, for sure. And, and to a certain degree, um, on sort of another point of control. Or in in the sense of not you know the you know controls that are the the regulators and the risk management folks appreciate what are the what are your controls against loss or theft or breach or you know all those things so yeah I mean you can go quite a far away uh, down that road it's <laughs> yeah. yeah so well cool um, yeah so and that's that's of course something you know we see is we we work with with uh, clients all over. In, in the financial services space. And, you know, we, we see them all. Uh, we work with clients who are, you know, on HubSpot and, and others that you've mentioned and others you haven't mentioned. And we, you know, so we see that, we have sort of that same philosophy of, you know, we're gonna, we're gonna apply services and data with whatever uh, platform you're using. But it, it definitely seems like the, the, I will say this, the, the providers that have an ecosystem approach definitely seem to be uh, winning in, in penetration and those that's, that have the more, you know, closed off proprietary approach, those seem to be either being, either fading or getting bought by those with ecosystem. I mean, this kind of goes back into history, like the inspiration we took for this. Uh, I mean, you think back to Windows, you know, and yep. the PC and there might be some arguments that perhaps that wasn't the world's best operating system. Uh, you yeah. know, certainly yeah. Steve Jobs at the time would have yeah, made that case. But because it was so open and yeah. allowed this ecosystem, you know, it really came to dominate. Uh, and that's another example where uh, yeah, uh, Jobs clearly learned his lesson, you know, by the time he got uh, to the iPhone. Yeah. And, you know, it really was the app store for both Apple and then also for Android that really created this like flywheel effect that made those two operating systems the dominant mobile operating systems. And to try and compete now to create a third mobile operating system, it, it almost doesn't matter what your technology is. If you couldn't then like, you know, match that universe of the, you know, millions of apps that, you know, yeah. these other stories have, like, you know, how do you break into it? So power, powerful lessons to be learned there. For sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, so... You know, speaking of that sort of lesson learned, um, 
you've got a pretty good crystal ball. What trends or capabilities you could see that might be, you know, hot topics three to five years from now? Wow, this is always the question that this this question was hard five years ago. Right. Um, <laughs> I almost feel it's kind of impossible at the moment just because the acceleration with AI. It just, I, I think once we start talking about five-year horizons at this point, it's actually really hard to know what the state of the art for this is going to be. I mean, I feel like there's some universal truths that I'm comfortable saying. Like, I think the primacy of data is yeah. not going to go away. And in fact, if anything, I think the more companies get really good at harnessing the data throughout their organization, having it well-managed, having it well-structured, uh, depending on the nature of the business, the degree to which they've developed data partnerships, mm-hmm. uh, you know, with other companies that they have relationships to. Um, these feel like solid things that like one way or another, the investment in that layer, uh, I think is very likely to pay off for companies moving forward. Um, I think the other thing is this increasing democratization, you know, sort of just following up on this no code. A lot of what we see with these AI tools is if no code made it possible for, let's say, the power users, you know, to sort of do things in a self-service way. You see these AI tools moving in the direction where like, heck, you don't even have to be a power user. If you know how to like, you know, use the English language or for that matter, any language, <laughs> you know, if you can basically describe in human language what it is you want, you know, you can get it. Um, I think that's just going to change the game so dramatically. And again, at some level, that becomes less about the technology and more about how do we adapt the way we run organizations and marketing organizations to operate in that world where each person on the marketing team potentially can have like 10x uh, the sort of power of what they have today? Yeah, well, well you know, you, you mentioned um, when I think about some of the no-code things like Photoshop was such an exponential accelerator for designers. Uh, now, interestingly enough, you don't you don't have as much adoption on Photoshop among non-designers. It's there, but it's it accelerated a lot. And then, like the email, you know, the no code on the e- email we were talking about, um, you know, that you you accelerated the marketer's ability to do email. Maybe they didn't need to pull in a coder. So, it, but but the the marketer who was giving direction you know, they're still doing things. And so, you know, I think it's interesting to think about that, that sort of trend of if people get more productive, more powerful, it really places that much more premium on good strategy, good intuition, uh, good judgment, uh, because those people that have that, those, those kind of critical thinking skills get, the ability to leverage up to your point 10x. So, okay, if, if I can do more experiments, I still, it still is helpful for me to quickly evaluate, evaluate and, you know, weed out, you know, non-important experiments. Yeah. You know, it's funny because um, using this 10x phrase, um, years ago, uh, there was an article, um, oh, uh, uh, Brooks, was his name, uh, this like software guru from like the 70s and 80s, you know, and he wrote this somewhat controversial article about this idea of, you know, when you looked at software developers, 
there was clearly a set of developers that he called the 10x developers, that they were just 10 times more powerful or more effective than the average, um, you know, software engineer. And this phrase kind of got like into the lexicon of, you know, yep. people were talking about like, are right, you hiring a 10x engineer here or whatnot? And it's a great parallel, I think, right now, because, you know, these engineers, they weren't 10x because they were typing 10 times faster. You know, right. Um, right. it was that it was like their ability to actually conceive strategically what to do, you know, with the yep. code was just that much more insightful. And because the code could give you the leverage that digital things do, yeah. Yeah. you could get that impact. And I think that is exactly the same sort of shift we now see happening in marketing where these 10x marketers, yeah, it's not going to be because they're doing 10 times as much, you know, it's going to be because they bring that insight and that strategic view, that innovation, that creative spark to this. And then the tools make it possible that once they have that like spark and that idea, the ability to actually incarnate, uh, you know, that is like, well, okay, yeah, that's just an implementation detail now. AI, please do this for me. Thank you very much. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, well, and maybe the flip side of what you're talking about is doing dumb things, and I say that in maybe quotes, but but doing things that aren't going to have an impact faster is still a bad idea. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, I mean, that's clearly like Backlash has already started on some of this AI stuff, like the generative AI in particular from a writing perspective, like, yeah. oh, I can use gener generative AI to create 10 what? times as many blog posts. Well, yeah, I'm at 10 times as many crappy blog posts. I'm not actually sure this is helping you out. <laughs> well, yeah, and, and I'm sure you've seen those articles about chat B GPT actually getting dumber. Have you? I did see those, yeah. I'm curious. Uh, so it seems like it's they, it's getting bad feedback from somebody. I mean, they've clearly got a, uh, a human reinforcement feedback loop yeah. uh, there. And so wouldn't, <laughs> I don't know if something's going wrong with the system or actually is there some sort of critique on us? Like, you know, the AI was pretty smart. And then as soon as we started to let it like interact with people, it just became dumber by the minute. <laughs> That'd be a very cynical interpretation of what's happening there. So, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, let's leave you as an open question, Mark. Yeah. But I think, you know, it's, I know sometimes, and we see this in every trend, right? I mean, I remember there was the, when I think back to the, right out, you mentioned iPhone, right after mobile, like, okay, mobile was going to do everything, right? If we could just get a mobile strategy, that would be Nirvana. And we wouldn't have to, like in our business, like, oh, we wouldn't have to worry about people in our branches. If we just have a great mobile app. Well, now, you know, almost 20 years after the introduction of the iPhone, you know, pe people still need people. Now, maybe they're going to go to the app first and only talk to a person when they, you know, they can't get what they want on the app. But that that's one of the, I think we have to be sort of careful in the, all these trends. If history tells us anything, it's not going to, you know, uh, it, it, it's not, it, it's not going to be Nirvana. It is probably, you know, so, so the people who sort of scoff at the outlandish claims, probably on the flip side, need to think about, well, but it, it you know, if it's a real trend, it's going to do something. Um, yeah. I mean, well, this is that classic uh, Gartner hype curve. Yeah. Is, yeah, something like this emerges, people get really carried away. Yeah. All right, well, that isn't going to happen. Right. And then, like, there's a backlash of people like, ah, yeah, it's total crap. You know, but that isn't right either, you know, and it's sort of after it goes through that, you know, extreme oscillation is when, okay, actually people start to figure out, no, this is what's really good at yep. and it can get better and it can improve and we can improve and 
they call it what the plateau of productivity. So, um, yeah. 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 But that makes sense. I mean, those themes that you talked about at the beginning, it's definitely sort of an, you know, it's, it's a, it's a continuation of a trend line that started from the very first, you know, marketing system that we could remember or sales system, you know, um, it's just a, it's just, you know, it's continue to take the rough edges off and solve, solve things that are the sort yeah, of the core. Database marketing from the eighties. Yeah, exa- right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it is amazing. So some, some of the people that were founders in our firm taught some of the first database marketing, uh, courses, uh, oh, wow. in the, in the, I guess the nineties, late, late eighties. And so you think about, you know, there's some, there are some fundamentals of understanding human behavior, understanding people's financial needs. Uh, so some of those fundamentals are the same, but the tools that we use to meet those needs have, have radically changed. You know, yeah. we're still presenting a message that's got to be relevant to a human. Uh, you know, maybe in the future, there's going to be an agent involved um, that you got to do, but all that, that creates all sorts of gamesmanship too. But fundamentally, it's got to be that. But then the way that message is delivered, the way that the impact that measure that message is measured, that's changed, you know, dramatically. And it is likely to continue to, to change into the future. So, yeah, I mean, it's like the concepts there uh, and literally like database marketing, you know, pioneered a lot of this concept around A-B testing, and, yeah. you know, personalization to targeting different segments yeah. and whatnot. Uh, it's just like in the digital age, essentially it was that capability, but now, boy, the speed at which we can do this, the variety at which we can do it, the, yeah. um, the feedback loops, like, yeah. you know, you actually can measure, you know, much deeper into uh, the engagement. Um, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's pretty wild. I mean, more than anything else, just the malleability of it. Right. Um, you know, I mean, it's been said time and time again, right? I mean, the, the physical world of, you know, uh, readjusting atoms tends to be pretty expensive, uh, <laughs> but in the digital world of like readjusting bits, um, yeah, it, it can happen as fast as your organization. Like the bottleneck there isn't the technology. The bottleneck is how quickly can your organization and the people in your organization, uh, take advantage of it. Yeah. Well said. And then, and then to your point, what, what's the, and in one sense, it's almost the constraint on what's, what's the speed at which the, the prospect or consumer is going to make a decision, <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. Well, this is, yeah, so, uh, clearly, uh, this is one of the other things with AI. I'm really curious to see the knock on effects for is, um, I mean, pretty much anyone with an email account at this point, you know, has like steadily seen like just the increase of, um, <laughs> yeah. outreach, you know, and it just gets to the point where you're like, all right, this is just too much. It's so much noise. Uh, and you think we're now here on this cusp where, okay, that was the noise you got with like all these human beings, like kind of some of these things and like, you know, reach out, you know, as AI basically marginal cost drops to zero to like send all these personalized outreaches. It's like, all right, people are going to just even tune that out further. And yeah. I think actually one of the things I'm really curious to see is, you know, we talked a lot about marketer technology with AI. I'm really excited to see the evolution of customer uh, buyer technology with AI, because mm-hmm. ultimately that's what buyers are going to want to do is to say like, listen, I don't want to sort through all this crap. Yeah. I want to tell the agent what it is I'm looking for. And the agent can sort through all this crap for yeah. me and it can negotiate with that other agent, you know, and like find the best deal and, you know, summarize to me the most important things. And, you know, that 
I think that's going to be a really interesting wave. Oh yeah, for sure. Well, you see that in the, in the email platforms, right? I mean, just all the stuff about, Hey, what are you filtering and what do you put on the main tab versus the, the other tab or the promo tab or whatever. So that's, that's, that's an example of the. Yeah. Great. (laughs) Well, I I think that that's, you know, your email example is a very interesting one. Uh, Text might get there sooner than we all want. You know, it's it's like, you know, as you get to a a marginal cost of zero. um, And we, we talk about this quite often is, yeah, you can send an email every day. It doesn't make it a good idea. Uh, and so I think the relevancy is going to be that much more important. You know, you've got to build trust with relevant messaging because people will tune you out quickly if if they know that it's it's not relevant. Well, this is part of the schism uh, between brand and direct that had always been there. And I think uh, as a long time, like part of my history with the firms I, I built was a uh, uh, very deep in what they call the conversion optimization space. Like, okay, yeah. how do you in these digital spaces, you know, run these experiments and, yeah. you know, like, uh, you know, improve uh, the efficacy of, you know, campaigns and whatnot. Um, but part of the problem is like, if you only look at things through that direct optimization lens, then you will get in a mode where you're like, okay, well, let's just experiment. And you can experiment in a very wide space and you're paying attention to the conversion rate number of like, oh, well, who are the new people you're winning? But there aren't very good mechanisms to like, well, wait a second, because of the experiments we're running, because we're running probably some bad ones, there's the good ones we see that work, and there's all the bad crap that we ran as an experiment that didn't work. We're like, if you're just tallying that statistically, what you're failing to recognize is actually those bad experiments probably had like consequential brand damage you know, to you, they had long lasting like impact of how people think of your company. Uh, and that's why I, I, I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm a big fan of, you know, like direct optimization capabilities. But I think having more brand oversight, you know, with yeah. that process is essential just to make sure that like, hey, we're going to try this experiment of sending an email three times a day for like the next three months. Let's see what that does to our conversion rate. Yeah. And you're like, well, there might be some other knock on effects there that we'd want to be. <laughs> Yeah. Cautious of. <laughs> well, yeah, and I think that's where that, that's the, that's what's so important to have the judgment, you know, whether you call brand governance or just good basic marketing leadership. Um, you know, hey, just because we can do something doesn't mean it's a good idea. Um, and then we like to think, you know, for example, in our category, since we do uh, financial services, we have a lot of experience. So our clients sometimes benefit from, they don't have to run their experiment themselves. They say, hey, you know, I'm thinking about this. How does that work? Have you done, have you seen anything? work and say, so then you can sort of benefit from other people's, uh, mistakes <laughs> and, and, yeah, no. and winners. So that's, you know, that's one of those. Yeah. It's a, it's a huge advantage of, uh, agencies, service providers in this space that, yeah, I sometimes often feel like people don't fully appreciate. Like I think people look at it as the direct thing of like, oh, well, I'm outsourcing this capability, so I didn't have to build it myself. Yeah, that's one direct benefit, you know, of it. But it's like tapping into that experience of having seen this across many different clients and being able to synthesize what works and what doesn't. I mean, it's really hard for an individual business to even like approach that. You know, I mean, I guess if you have unlimited budget and unlimited (laughs) cachet to like hire all the people who have all that experience. But most of us don't, you know, have that uh, luxury. 
Um, and so, yeah, I'm a huge believer in like the power of the services ecosystem to help people get real value out of this technology. Awesome. Well, Scott, any, any final thoughts as we're, as we're winding down? You know, I always just like to tell people, um, cause I, when I, whenever we talk about this stuff, I just recognize that for so many people, it's this mind blowing thing of like, oh my goodness, it's just so much. How can I ever keep up with this? And I just want to like assure people like, you're not alone. I haven't met anyone uh, who's able to keep up with all of this. I mean, this is just, we are now in a world where it's just constant change. And yeah, it's a bit stressful, but, you know, take a deep breath because everyone's in that same boat together, you know? And so it's not getting your arms around all of it. None of us can do that. It's about like, okay, what's the plan for prioritizing what's important for me? And just focus on learning and growing it with that, uh, you know, a bit every day. And uh, yeah, hold on for the ride. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for coming on the show and offering your insight. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks so much for having me, Dan. All right, take care. That's it for today on Top Quartile. If you haven't already, be sure to subscribe to Top Quartile wherever you find podcasts on any podcast app. And while you're at it, we'd really appreciate a five-star rating. And if you're interested in getting an opportunity assessment, head over to infusionmarketinggroup.com to learn more. Thanks for listening.